0: A couple of years ago, I was on a uh, long flight, like a 17-hour flight. That's how long? It takes like 18 hours to get from New York to Hong Kong so that I could go and retreat in Thailand. And I woke up at one point, and uh, for some reason, I was so tired, There, I just turned on the, the little TV set, and the first thing that came on was one of those cooking shows, like Top Chef, and the idea of the cooking show is that um, uh, they had all these different chefs and they would put out the uh, different ingredients that they would, the show would choose and the chefs wouldn't know. And they had to work with whatever ingredients. And one chef was like really caught up in just how strange the ingredient was. One chef was really missing something that he really always used in his cooking, like garlic or something, or ginger. He was just really focused on what wasn't there. <laughs> Another chef was really caught up with the fact that there was octopus. He didn't want to work with octopus. I wouldn't particularly either. but uh, So he just was really focused on the one ingredient. I mean, you didn't have to use all the ingredients, but he was just so caught up with a thing he didn't like, that he didn't really focus on everything else that was available. Of course, there was one chef that got really amazed by the quality of the ingredients and immediately started uh, experimenting and didn't get caught up in what was not there that he wanted or what was there that he didn't like or having fantasies of it being an entirely different set. He just immediately turned to what is and kind of got along with it. And, of course, uh, he was the one that wound up doing the best. It wasn't a coincidence. And it struck me at the time, because I don't really give a toss about cooking. I can barely spread peanut butter on, a, on bread. And even it's a small miracle if I can do that right. Uh, so I don't really... Have, I didn't have any care about the cooking aspect of it, but what I found in my sort of day's state of being on the plane interesting was that uh, it was an apt metaphor for life. We don't get to choose the ingredients that face us every morning when we wake up or every time we stop and turn to face our inner experience or when we go into a new day of work the ingredients are often largely out of our control, and very often the ingredients that we're faced with don't seem to match very well, especially with our idea about the way life should be. So, the Buddha said that there are two different kinds of desire. There's one desire that's really unskillful, and it actually gets us in a lot of trouble. It's called Tana. And Tana is the kind of desire that or known more often as craving, where we look at experience, whatever we're feeling internally or whatever we're experiencing externally, and we fixate, we know that we're uncomfortable, we know that we're overwhelmed, we feel suffering or we feel unease. There's a kind of constant state, anyway, in the human experience. There's always some, what the Buddha called, suffering going on. And so we feel it and then we look at our experience and we focus on what's missing. And then we try to fill that thing that's not missing. So for instance, we go home after a long day of work and we feel a little sense of loneliness and tiredness and there's nobody else there and we think, oh, what's missing from my life is a relationship. And then the Tana mind says, wow, that would be the solution for everything. If I wind up in a relationship, I'll never suffer again. Of course, we don't actually think this, but that's the way Tana works. It's an unconscious drive that, uh, that focuses our attention on getting something, some magic bullet that we believe will solve our suffering. So it could be anything. We could be writing something, struggling with it, and look at suddenly the computer we're writing on and go, you know what? If I had one of those new shiny Macs, that would make the difference. Or if I lived in a different neighborhood, if I lived in a different apartment, or if I had a nicer desk, or if I had a different roommate. So part, Tana can, comes in different flavors. One flavor is the, the kind of craving that looks at, finds something that we believe is missing from our life and wants to get it. It wants to get the girlfriend, the boyfriend, the friend, the band. It wants to just acquire something. And the underlying idea, of course, is that right now I can't be happy until I get this thing. Right now I don't have the ingredients I need to be happy. I was dealt a poor hand. Another kind of Tana, Vibhava Tana, is where we look at our experience and we want to get rid of something. Oh, if only I wasn't so bald, (laughs) weird-looking, tall, short, didn't have this body, didn't have this neurosis, didn't have this fear, didn't have this uh, issue, if only I didn't have something, then everything would be great. (laughs) And it could also be something external. Oh, if only I could get rid of that roommate. What a pain in the neck. Leaves the towels everywhere, doesn't do the dishes, plays terrible music. If only I could get rid of that co-worker. If only I could get rid of my upstairs, downstairs neighbor. My father's new wife. My cousin's new girlfriend. My whatever. So that's another thing about... Tana, it can either be finding the one thing that's missing and trying to get it, or finding the one thing that we have in our life that we believe is keeping us. And again, the message is pretty much the same. In both forms, in all forms of Tana, the idea is that I cannot be happy right now. There's a Tana that just wants to self-improve as well. I want to be a different person. I want to be better. The person I am right now isn't worthy of happiness. It doesn't matter what ingredients I'm dealt with, I just don't have the right personality. I've got to become... I've got to acquire more knowledge, more... I've got to read that one book I haven't read yet about Buddhism (laughs) that will give me the wisdom. And the thing about Tana or craving is that it's never satisfied. Whenever you acquire the object that it's fixated on, the it's craving that gives the iPad its shiny glow in the mirror. And then when you bring it home, and we open up the box, and there my, my iPad is... Then suddenly it doesn't glow anymore. <laughs> suddenly it's just a thing. And then a little while was like, uh oh. It's craving that gives objects, people, places, their nice, shiny, warm... This will help me fix everything, solve everything, glow. But once we get it, as the Buddha said, with craving, all the world is not enough to satisfy our craving. It just moves on to another object and another object. We get the apartment, then we need the furniture. We get the furniture, then you need the boyfriend and girlfriend. You get the boyfriend and girlfriend, then you want to get rid of them. (laughs) We're all the same. We all experience this form of tanha. And it's the Buddha said the energy that keeps us in traditional Buddhism. If you're into that, the Buddha taught that that's the thing that keeps people going from one lifetime to another. That's the energy that propels us from one existence to the next. I'm not one. I'm not a uh, metaphysical Buddhist. I'm a yeah. I'm a secular Buddhist. <laughs> so I I tend to think that it's it's craving that keeps us from being able to. Settle into any given moment in our life and say, "I'm here. I'm arrived." <laughs> I was in the subway car, and there was—it uh, was in winter—and there was this advertisement that had a I- image of the Bahamas and a and a what, what are those kind of... Palm trees and a beach chair, some kind of beer, <laughs> and a message beneath it is, "You you finally arrived," which was rich because I was in. February in New York. I was anywhere but that image. And it said, you've arrived. So the message is, you can only arrive when you're not here where you are. (laughs) Arriving in life is always somewhere else in the future where you're not. Where the cool, wonderful people are. Do you ever see that Woody Allen movie, Stardust Memories, where it starts at, he's in the... Train with looks like a looks like a Russian shtetl or something, and they're all eating potato soup and all. Of, everybody's like 70 and hunched over and looking at him. And meanwhile, there's this other train where everybody's you know dressed up for a party and drinking champagne, and a beautiful woman gives him a look, and he's stuck on the train. That's what Tana gives us the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> there's somewhere over there, there's another, just over there, somewhere else than where I am, there's there's a solution. So in contrast to this, there's chanda, which is actually uh, very often a skillful kind of desire. It's often used in companion with words like dhamma chanda, kusala chanda, santi chanda, and it's a simply it's a desire that looks at what's available right here, right now, and desires to use it in a skillful way so that we can maximize our chances of happiness right here, right now. It's a desire for peace with what we have, for our experience as it is. And the Buddha says that this is not a form of desire that keeps going on. Once it sees that we've made any progress, that we've lessened our stress, resistance, our suffering, it switches off and just allows us to appreciate its works. So it works by using tools such as acceptance, appreciation, patience, creativity. It asks that we rather than view what's been dealt with to us or view what our internal experiences as in terms of what can I get rid of or what am I missing? But instead, it asks us to turn towards what is present with an appreciative, creative mind. Sometimes part of the work is also to see what's usable and what we have to not pay attention to in our internal experience or our external experience. Very often, the mind wants to go towards the least pleasant thing in any situation and fixate on it. It's the way the brain is set up. Where's the most irritating person in the room? Where's my ex? Where's my... my, that one person that irritates me? The brain, actually, the emotional brain, the right hemisphere, is set up to highlight either what's missing or what has created emotional trauma. So the right hemisphere and the, um, and the midbrain really help keep this agenda of craving in mind and it, in place, and it takes a lot of effort to override that tendency of looking at life in terms of what's missing or what's here that I need to get rid of before I get to be happy. Consequently, the Buddha also said there's two kinds of thinking. One is, falls into the category of Upadana. Upadana means thought that we cling to and can't turn off. And that generally comes in two flavors. One is diti Upadana, which is views and opinions about the way the world should be. Some people can get pretty caught up in that. Sometimes those views are wonderful, but they can get us in a lot of trouble if we don't know when to put them down. I, for one, believe that everybody everywhere should have health care. It should be not a privilege, but a right of every human being. But, of course, if I bring that view in the situations where it's wholly uncalled for, I was at a wedding <laughs> with uh, the groom's Family all came from the deep south and all believed in everything that Fox News said. And for some reason, I wound up at one of those tables and made with some of them. And it took every last ounce of energy because they saw, they heard that I was from Brooklyn and they immediately knew. They took one look at me and they knew. And they were just, they were just bringing it all out, just hoping that I would take the bait. Hoping that I would take the bait. But there are, just, there's a, there are times when even the most right views, even the most appropriate true views, we have to know won't get us anywhere. And we have to be able to go to other views or simply know when to just be with what is and try to work with what's present rather than impose our desire to change other people or to change something that can't be changed. By far and away, the thought that is the most powerful and the most difficult to switch off is not our views of the world, but our views of self. Buddha said the thoughts, this is who I am, wondering about what other people think about me, wondering what's going to happen to me in the future, wondering uh, how I relate to other people, if other people are doing or accomplishing more than I am. Wondering what belongs to me and what doesn't belong to me. All of those thoughts, the Buddha said, are by far and away the most difficult to switch off. They're like miracle grow of suffering in the mind. (laughs) Sprinkle a little self in there. Sprinkle a little, what does this mean about me? And suddenly the thought part of the mind won't switch off. It's a little bit like the Trojan horse. If you, you know that story of uh, the Greeks were fighting I guess the Trojans. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> My God, that's weak. So, uh, so they were trying to, I think, get into Troy and the battle went on for a long time. They couldn't get in because the walls were high. So finally they came up with the ingenious plan. They pretended to sail away. They left this big horse as a victory monument and the Trojans came out and pulled in the horse and then in the course of that night the Greeks sailed back and uh, this was back when they had money <laughs> 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 I couldn't uh... <laughs> they could they could afford to sail back in those days and uh, Meanwhile, at night, uh, in the cover of darkness, the soldiers jumped out of the horse where, in which they were hidden, opened the gates, and the Greek army came in and took over Troy. And I'm bringing up this analogy because thoughts of self are like the Trojan horse. They always start out, Winnicott, the great psychologist, said that early on our thoughts in, so about self are grandiose compensatory false self iterations. Did I just say that? Wow. Um, in other words, they give us a sense of an alternate reality that feels comforting, because when children experience life is overwhelming and frightening, so we develop thoughts of self as fantasies to help compensate for our lack of control over our situations, our circumstances. In our fantasies, as children, we believe we're in control, or we are in control in the fantasies, but a child in his real life is not in control, or her real life is not in control, so our thoughts in life start out as wonderful tools that make us feel safe and protected from all the painful experiences that are going on around us where parents are making decisions that we don't like and we're experiencing rough times with other kids. But later on in life, those thoughts about who am I, what do other people think about me, uh, what's going to happen to me in the future, they seem to be gifts, but they're actually the way that obsession And stress and worry creep into the mind. You open a thought about self, and it is the way that all the floods of ideation pour out. So, unlike thoughts of self and views and opinion about the world, the Buddha said there are safe thoughts that don't continue on and on and on that know when to stop and those thoughts are vitaka wikara Witaka is the thought that simply knows what's a skillful object or a skillful experience to focus attention on for example when we focus on the breath in meditation or when we go into a meeting with a difficult person where we expect to be mistreated instead of Focusing on everything they're saying, we might use we talk to remind ourselves. Okay, bring some of my attention into the body and relax so that I can be comfortable and I won't be activated and reactive. Weekara is the thought that asks, given what I have right now, how can I work with my experience to make it more bearable? So, for example, if I'm working with the breath, weekara might say, Oh, I'm tired that means I have to put more emphasis on my in-breath. Or, wikara might notice that I'm anxious and worried, and then it might say, okay, that means I have to stretch out the length of my out-breaths. Or it might be in a meeting where I'm feeling unheard and always wanting to talk, but other people won't shut up. <laughs> and, Weakara might say, we talk, might say, okay, bring my awareness back into the body. And weakara might say, okay, how can I relax that muscle in my neck that connects to the shoulders that always gets tight when I want to say something? And darn it, those other people won't let me get a word in edgewise. How can I relax that? Or how can I let go of that tightness in my jaw? or how can I soften the muscles in my eyes so that I can be present and patient and wait until I can get my observations and my thoughts in. So the key with Vitaka, wikara and safe thoughts is that they don't take whatever we're experiencing personally. They don't add, why am I going through this? They don't add the idea, maybe I'm the only person who's ever experienced this. If we're dealing with an emotional experience like fear or panic or sadness or boredom or grieving, We Talk the Week doesn't add the story, my grieving, my sadness, my worry, my anxiety, my panic is worse than everybody else's. Nobody can understand. It simply sees what's present, brings the attention to it, softens it, breathes into it, acknowledges it. It doesn't try to get rid of it. It doesn't try to look at what's missing and find something that's not available. It doesn't try to push things out. Very often in life, the only ways we know how to relate to difficult, painful memories, painful thoughts, painful feelings that we wish we didn't have, memories of losses, memories of rejections, memories of relationships that went wrong, memories of lost opportunities, thoughts of fear about what might happen in the future, financial insecurity, when these painful or overwhelming thoughts arise, we generally rely on two strategies, and both can be pretty unskillful. The first is I'm going to climb into this catastrophizing thought and I'm going to run with it, see how far this train could go. It's like being in the 14th Street subway stop and on the line, in comes this train saying, going to hell, (laughs) going to the hell realms where everything will be miserable and we climb right on board because we go, well, it's the first train that came along. Somebody might stay in the platform, but that train says it's going to, <laughs> that train saying it's going to Misery Land, Avenue X and Death Street, that's where that train is heading, are you sure you want to get on there? Most of us with our minds. Myself included, we're all like, whoa, here's a thought, it's my thought, I might as well climb and board, (laughs) see where it leads. And even though we get in and there's a million little us inside, chattering away, worrying about ourselves, we're like, oh, I might as well go with this thought. So the next thing we know, we're in obsession and insomnia land. The other way we rely on, or we relate to thoughts is by trying to get rid of them. Oh, this memory... This worry, this concern, this idea, ew, go away. I don't want to have you. Ew. Let's go to Facebook quickly as soon as we can. <laughs> selfie, selfie. Like my new haircut? Well, I don't get to say that. <laughs> <laughs> like my new tattoo? Yeah. <laughs> look at my new hoodie. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. like that. So you know, we look for just dis- any way to distract, get rid of it, push the memory away. And then what happens, of course, is over time those memories that we keep pushing away, those thoughts, those feelings, those experiences don't go away. They they come out compartmentalized, deflected. There's all sorts of psychological uh, uh, ways that thoughts that are repressed, memories that are repressed, come out. You can't outrun them. So the skillful way is to turn to our experience, whatever the mind is serving up, and rather than try to get rid of, or try to look for something that's not present, is to simply see, okay, this is what the ingredients are, and I'm the top shelf chef, and I'm dealing with these ingredients, and my job is first to appreciate, welcome them, really investigate what happens when each of these ingredients in life are dealt. The chef that's skillful smells the ingredients and looks and gets their taste and knows which ones he's going to work with. And so we investigate what's arisen. We don't say, no, you're not allowed. But we don't climb into the thought and go with it. We investigate it from the outside. Oh, here's a thought about uh, financial insecurity. My old good friend, I'll be poverty-stricken there you are so what do you do when you're around well how do you how do you sit in the body well you tighten my belly you strangle me around the throat you create a lot of agitation and jumpiness in the mind and my left hemisphere feels obliged to jump in and figure out all the ways I can solve you by getting some kind of more money how I can and that's craving that idea of if I just get more money I won't ever feel financial insecurity. That never works, by the way. Because financial insecurity, like every other fear of abandonment, is just part of the human experience. It doesn't go away simply because... There are billionaires who have financial insecurity. I'd like to have that problem, but... (laughs) But it doesn't... You can't ever answer a a set, ingrained part of the human experience by accumulating. It doesn't work. Nor by trying to get rid of. The only way we deal with the human experience is by embracing it, feeling it, holding it, giving it space, allowing it to arise, nurturing it, understanding its fears, honoring it, but don't allow it to rule how we act, and don't climb inside of it. Just allow the feeling beneath the thought to express itself fully in the body. We just welcome the thought, allow it to be there. Oh, you're allowed financial insecurity. I'm gonna see what happens when I allow you to be there. So we're greeting experience. We're really finding out what needs to be done. And then the Buddha finally said, we can practice developing tolerance practice developing awareness practice developing metta, sending kindness to our experience we can cultivate so many different spiritual tools if we don't climb inside of or push away the ingredients of life that arise each time we turn to our internal experience or even the external ingredients that we're faced with each day we're no longer running from life we're embracing it without the belief that our happiness has to be put off somewhere else in the future the belief is if I embrace, look at, nurture tolerate and express patience towards everything I've been dealt with and try a little ingenuity somehow by working with my inner experience by not resisting, by not running or avoiding, by not trying to seek something in the future, somehow I can all the time find new ways to introduce peace in my life. So I hope there was a little wisdom somewhere tucked in there. I thank you for listening. And uh, now we will give it time for those people who need to... uh, please when we close our eyes what we're telling the mind to do is to let go of its tendency to find happiness externally to seek for the magic bullet in life outside of ourselves to begin to reprioritize the way we experience and use the mind in accordance with understanding that internal awareness of the breath, body sensations, contact sensations with the ground and clothes, hearing Smell, awareness of inner moods and different states of consciousness that arise and pass, sometimes sleepy, sometimes alert, sometimes anxious, sometimes calm. In this awareness and learning to skillfully adjust the breath, the body, what we attend our awareness to. We can actually begin to accomplish so much. There's so many ways we can deactivate ourselves when we're upset, disappointed with other people. If the only way we know how to deactivate is by trying to get other people to do what we want, that's a very limited set of tools with which to try to find happiness in life. But if we have more tools, tools that we can control, like how we breathe, how we relate to the body, how we relate to the mind, then suddenly we have so much more influence over the levels of stress, conflict, emotional activation. (laughs) So let's start by bringing our practices all into unison, take a nice long, smooth in-breath through the nose, and lift the shoulders up if you like, if it feels okay, towards your ears, like you're trying to touch your ears, with your shoulders, and then hold the in-breath for a beat, and then breathe out through the mouth, and release those shoulders all the way down to the point where, if it feels appropriate, slightly pull them back so that you open up your chest and leave a lot of room for the breath, and then for the next breath, pulling in the belly really tight, like you're trying to lose two inches on your waist. And just hold it, and then when you breathe out through the mouth, soft belly. Really nice, soft, round belly. And now for the third breath, tightening the muscles in the face, the buttocks, the fists, anything else you like, just make a nice, tight body and then when you breathe out just soften everything taking a nice moment to survey your inner experience and note if there's anything you'd like to adjust and use this time to adjust it so you might feel that some clothes are too tight that you're sitting in a way that's probably not sustainable Be really kind with yourself. So setting an intention for the meditation, and the intention will be to be really compassionate, kind, patient, kanthi, bhavana, Buddhist words. So when your mind drifts away from whatever we're focusing it on or investigating, just be really patient, don't add any judgments about yourself, how well you meditate. Instead, try to greet each awareness with a sense of feeling good, that you're developing a worthy practice in your life. So for the first part of the meditation, we'll work with an object of concentration. And what that means, it's often referred to as an anchor. An anchor is an ongoing sensation or thought that's very simple that we can keep in mind. And like a, a boat's anchor, it keeps the mind from floating away too far from the present moment. So thoughts, of course, can keep us They create a very strong current in the mind that can take your awareness far away from the present so to keep your awareness presently attuned which is where happiness and peace of mind can be found after all is in the present can't find peace of mind in the past because it's gone, and in the future it may or may not happen. But right now, right here, is the only opportunity we have. So we don't want to let our minds drift too far away from this time, this precious possibility of achieving some inner peace. So you can choose from the breath, feeling the sensations of inhalation and exhalation, or listening to sounds arising and passing without clinging to them. You can keep in mind a very simple shape or color, the Buddha called a Nimitta. Or you can repeat in the mind an exceedingly short phrase that denotes peace. May I feel peaceful. Or hold an image of yourself in your mind and recite, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. If you work with The breath, sometimes the counting strategy helps. And all that means is, while you're breathing in, count one. You can hold the word one throughout the breath, or just at the very beginning or end of the in-breath. And then two on the out-breath. Three on the next in-breath. Four on the following out-breath. And then when you reach five, the third in-breath then beginning to count down four on the next out breath three two etc so you're counting from one up to five and back down and one three and five are always on in breaths two and four are always on out breaths and this works pretty well because You have to keep enough awareness to know what number you're on and which direction you're heading up or down. But try to keep as much of your awareness on the actual sensations of the breath. The numbers are just a way for you to know when you've lost track and floated away. for the second half of the meditation, we'll be moving into an insight practice, and that means you can let go of the anchor you've been employing, not push it away, but just no longer feel any need to keep it constantly in awareness. And just allow the mind to stay open and spacious Hearing the sounds of the room, the sounds from the street, feeling the contact you're making with the ground, still aware of the breath, even the lights flickering behind the eyelids, noting what mood you're in. Are you anxious or settled? Are you bored or happy, sad, worried? distracted, just well. would best summarize the state of mind? Let well, this basically be a snapshot of where you are at this time, noting how your breath feels, how your body feels, how aware you are of sounds, the energy level in the mind. Now, eventually, some thoughts will arise in the mind. They're a little bit like... The mind could be thought of as like a room, and a thought is like somebody turning on a television set in a room. Thoughts are very attractive to our attention. So when a thought suddenly switches on, What I'd like you to do is not become subsumed by it and lose awareness of everything else, nor try to turn that television set off, but just note what's on the television set in your mind, whatever thought wants your attention. And then note, how does this thought affect everything else in your experience? Does that thought being there suddenly change the way you breathe? Does it change how well you hear sound? Does the presence of this thought make you move into a different mood, level of attention? Sometimes you might want to summarize, oh, there's a thought about what to do with the rest of my evening. (coughs) Or, there's a thought about something that happened today. Here's a thought about an argument I had, or a nice conversation. A really brief summary, and then see how the mind and the body reacts to this thought. This is what the Buddha called Dhamma Vikaya, investigating thought. We don't investigate the insight or the content of thoughts, just how thinking certain types of thoughts affects the rest of our experience. So we're going to begin the transition from the meditation. Just take a moment to reflect on the virtue of your practice knowing that having any effort devoted to meditation securing some form of acceptance, tolerance, patience with our inner experience, developing a way to create ease through awareness of the breath, body, it gives us a way to find some ease in life that doesn't exploit others, that doesn't use up the world's resources, that's always available, that harms no one, that causes no side effects. So, it's a blameless project that has wonderful mental and physical benefits. So, no matter whether a meditation is easy or difficult, always make sure to acknowledge any time that you spend knowing that it's. A virtue. And then, when you hear the sound of the bowl indicating it's time to open your eyes, use the entire length of the sound of the bowl to slowly open the eyes and rather than allowing sight to push out inner awareness of the body and the breath, see if you can use the length of the sound to incorporate sight into all the other senses that are available to you.